Bonjour and Tansay. Welcome to Mino Gandagan, the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. On this episode, we speak with some of the entertainment industry's most influential Indigenous voices. We pose the question, has reconciliation happened in movies or on stage? Has it happened within the lives of these talented performers? Stick around to find out. Our first guest is Métis actress and activist Tantu Cardinal, a member of the Order of Canada, one of the country's highest civilian honours. The Order of Canada recognises Cardinal for her contributions to the growth and development of Aboriginal performing arts in Canada, and she was honoured with the 2015 Actra Award of Excellence. Her most notable roles include Dances with Wolves, North of 60, Blackstone and The Killing. I'm sitting here with the living legend, Tantu Cardinal, and I just wanted to talk to you about reconciliation in the entertainment industry, where you started off many years ago and the Indigenous representation then versus um, Indigenous representation now in the entertainment industry. Reconciliation. I was looking up the definition of reconciliation, the restoration of friendly relations. I was raised by my grandmother, and I saw how she worked with the non-Indigenous people in the community, how she treated them. And by the way she treated them, she opened doors for them to uh, appreciate her and to be able to hear her. And uh, I'd imagine that that she was not always heard. So that has been a part of my approach from the very beginning, because we're all dummies (laughs) or we're all brilliant. Uh, With the film industry, you all have to work together. I thought that uh, I I decided not to um, go into the political world as an entity, only as an observer, because I thought I might be able to get more done in in the world of acting. I thought that, you know, I have a mind and all this kind of stuff. And um, I don't know, for some reason, I thought that I would have more freedom of expression there, but that's not really the case because you have to work with everybody that's involved in the project. So I guess it is a restoration of friendly relations to to make sure that uh, you try to kind of keep it that way. And then another uh, definition is the action of making one view or belief compatible with another. Any possibility of reconciliation between such clearly opposing sides. That I will probably go on till the end of days. And, and it must be the end of days that will give the other side a clue that this world is destructible. We have a responsibility to a relationship with Mother Earth. If there's any reconciliation that has to be done, it is with our relationship with Mother Earth. People have been listening too hard to a man-made concept of our existence here. And it's time we turned around and listen to the mother. And um, that is part of reconciliation, which I don't hear as, as, uh, as a part of the conversation coming from the government. It's not coming from there. And I'm, I'm sure there are individuals all over the place that understand that and are moving in that direction. And so as far as worldview, that is a constant work, working in film or working in, in any kind of storytelling that has other, that has other worldviews, other cultures uh, involved. You, you always have to work together something that you can both live with and uh, sometimes that takes some real wheeling and dealing and and uh, but once the contract is signed that's when you just ha- kind of have to go with it if there's something that I can't abide by then I can't be involved but if there's something that can be negotiated and some change can be made then we can do that And this business of action of making financial accounts consistent, harmonizing, should be consistent with business strategy. Now, that is something that's throughout our business. Are you being paid properly for your work? You know, are you expected to to work for scale because it's a, oh, you know, do this because it's a heart project. I always remember one project that we did. Everybody went scale or below scale. I don't remember. It was just not much money at all. And so, 
so rarely did we get the opportunity to tell our stories that everybody was going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then find out later that the producer was able to buy his girlfriend a sports car because we all gave it so hard at the office. You know, he had money left over. He could do that. And so, you know, there's there's a, a lot to reconciliation. And I think what we, the, the, the beginning point in my thoughts right now at this moment, and it may change in, in two minutes, <laughs> but that the reconciliation begins with ourselves. There's a lot of decolonizing that has to go on in our heads. The idea that we can only have a society or civilization if we have extractive industry, if we have oil money or uranium money or or uranium energy and all of this kind of stuff, I think that's the fallacy. And this is where we have to work with ourselves. There's no more excuse. Back in the 80s, people could push me away from the mic and say, that's impossible, you know, because the hardware wasn't, um, was very expensive and it wasn't as obvious as it is now. And now everybody can think in those terms of uh, decolonizing what what's in your mind, what's really in your mind, how did it get there, and how true it is. We are in a time of truth-telling now. We have to tell the truth. We have to tell the truth to ourselves first, and we have to tell the truth on the outside, because that's the only way that we're going to get to some solid foundation. Just astonishing to me that this idea that there has to be pipelines, why not take those billions of dollars and turn it around into renewables now for the sake of our kids, for the sake of life. That's how I feel about it. And you've you know? used your 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 celebrity status, you know, along with um, such names as, as Margot Kidder to be a champion of, of that cause of opposing the Keystone Pipeline. And I think not everyone in your position has done that or has used their, you know, their celebrity status for such a cause, do you feel like in terms of reconciliation over the past 10 years that your views have really changed? No, no, they they have not changed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'm just kind of old and crusty that way. Um, <laughs> that, actually, I was born with it. This is, is something that I felt all my life, and, and then I would hear things that would just entrench it and get it stronger. And sometimes, you know, in, in times of um, lack of clarity, it would just something would be bothering me and bothering me, no articulation for it. I've been doing a reconciliation with my own self for a while now, and, you know, everybody has to make that decision for themselves. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> That's a good story to stick to. And I just, I just, I, when when Alan Adams said that he's now for the pipeline, I was going, "Wow, how can you do? How can you do that?" You know, I I had faith in him, the leader. I thought he knows, he knows what we have to do for the future. People are so tired of living in poverty. Where is the reconciliation when our people are consistently in poverty, consistently having to live with poison water, consistently living with poor medication, in the jails, and, and our women being targets for, you know, some, some frustration yeah. that these people have because they forgot where they come from. This, this relationship with the earth has been taken away from their cultures. Mm-hmm. quite a while ago and we're holding that light those of us who know something about our culture that believe in our culture being the medicine for what we need in this society now we know how important that is and and other people they don't even they don't even remember is it in their genetics anymore is there in somewhere in their nuances can they hear a drum way back that tells them they have a song that they have a, a ceremony that they have a responsibility with all these other cultures that have been torn away from their relationship with the earth so long ago they forget they even had such a thing. Just before we we wrap up, um, what advice would you give to our young Indigenous youth who who want to do what you're doing? Well, what I'm doing is 
I'm I'm doing what we're all doing in the sense of we're we're trying to move forward and we're trying to get to that place with light and love and peace, respect, yeah, and credibility and, and dignity and, and all of that stuff. And I I would have a caution, but that's because I haven't approached it in that way. I would have a caution to anybody who thinks, well, I'm going to get into the entertainment business because that's where people get rich. Or I'm going to get into the entertainment business because that's where people get famous. It all depends on your path. And I got into this business because I, I wanted to find out what it was that I could contribute. What was I good for? What did I care about? What, what could I sustain for a long period of time? What did I love? And that's how this fell into my lap or, you know, guided me in that direction. And the more opportunities came up, the more I dropped whatever I was doing and went to acting. And that's how I knew that I had to stay in acting because it was not fair to whatever I was dropping. And I do it because so much has to be changed in people's hearts and minds and bodies and, and communities and civilization and and it's a huge turnaround that we have to perform as people of the earth and, and that are indigenous to this land. And, and if I go down in that destruction that's being created right now, fine, fine. That's how I went down. You know, we have to leave something for the ones coming behind us. And what we're leaving for the people coming behind us is there's gaping holes that are starting to form in, in, the, in the tundra. Every time you turn around, there's some new disaster. It's What's the point in, in teaching your young people how to hunt? I don't know. There's going to be any animals left here after this, after the algae in the oceans and, and forest fires. You have to kind of get close to God as far as I can see it. Am I being too downer? No, you're being realistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of answers we want, is we want people to be blunt and we want you know, the words to actually come from themselves and not something that they feel like they have to formulate to make everybody feel good about themselves. There's a lot of people that are, are so discouraged. And I, I went through that back in the late 70s and early 80s through my suicidal time. And I, and I made it through to this part. And there's so many people that are, are suddenly realizing that it's pretty rugged out. It is. I've been in many, many situations where I could have been a statistic. It hasn't happened. And I credit my guidance. I credit the spiritual warriors that surround me. And that spiritual energy, when you think of it in terms of we're spirits before we come into this life. And we're nothing but spirit when we leave. So what are we doing with spirit in the meantime? That's where everything comes from. So that's where all... Everything is, you know, the thoughts that you need, the ideas that you need, the direction that you need. And if you pay attention to that voice, you go left instead of right, and you've managed to escape some kind of a brutal thing. How many times has that happened? How many times has that happened, you know? I, I lost count years ago. I just stopped counting. Yeah, you can't. That is the magic and the beauty and that's a part of reconciliation with yourself. And that's a part of decolonizing. And our whole approach is, when you're talking about worldviews, how are we going to um, reconcile that? It hasn't been, you know, to, to reconcile, you have to, what would be the reconcile? You have to have some kind of an agreement in the first place. We've never had that agreement. Mm -hmm. The only agreement was, well, yes, we couldn't kill you, so um, I guess we got to do something else. So we make you sign treaties and take away your yeah. land and put your yeah, kids well, in schools. Yeah, we'll you there. Yeah. In that box, then. Yeah. Get out of our face. Anyway, I better go. I got to go <laughs> see my grandchildren. Okay. Oh, Mikwich Tant, thank All you right. so much. Okay, have a good one. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Mino Gundagan, the Good Voice podcast, the show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. 
We just spoke with actress Tantu Cardinal. Be sure to check out her work at imdb.com and wikipedia.com. Up next, our second guest is Jerry the Big Bear Barrett, an award-winning stand-up comedian and actor. Barrett is an Ojibwe and grew up on the Saugeen First Nation in Ontario. The Big Bear is known for his biting political satire, pop culture references, skits, and live music. Jerry has toured his all-Indigenous-themed stand-up comedy show and tribute to Elvis to corporate events and festivals across North America. Hi, this is Sasha Mark. Welcome to the Minigon Dagon podcast. We have a very special guest with us today, stand-up comedian. He is a Ojibwe Elvis, and he is on the APTN's The Laughing Drum. Let's welcome Jerry Barrett. Thank you for coming in, Jerry. The white man may have taken our land, but now we rule the internets. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Colonize that. You know? uh, Jerry Barrett is Ojibwe Anishinaabe fellow from the Saugeen First Nation in southern Ontario. I was a 60s scoop kid. Uh, they scooped me when I was four months old. I was put into the foster care system and eventually adopted out when I was four years old. The, the assimilation is now complete. You're perfected. How do you feel now? <laughs> you feel fantastic. <laughs> Going through the foster system and stuff, but looking back on it now at my age, it's, uh, you know, it's been quite a journey. And I try to take a lot of that, tell a lot of that story, my story, in uh, in my stand-up comedy. It's mm-hmm. uh, more of a storyteller nowadays. I'm getting older than <laughs> refer to myself as a storyteller. But when people hear it, they can't believe it. You know, all, all the uh, adventures that I've had along the way, having to um, adapt to the white world and, and uh, come up through the system that way. So it's proven to be uh, very interesting for the audience whenever I, I tell my story. A big thing that a lot of people talk about is they say that laughter is medicine. Do you find that, you know, your comedy was something that was used to, you know, help you cope with your experiences? Well, when I was a kid, um, because I was one of the few brown people in my uh, small town uh, in, in Canada here, I used to get beat up a lot. Okay. Uh, bullied in school, beat up, called really racist names. And so whenever I would see a big guy coming across the playground to what I <laughs> I knew a beaten was coming, I would use humor to deflect any any potential violence that may be coming my way. Sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. In my as a kid, I was thrown on, thrown down a really steep hill by two bullies, and they just picked me up and just hurled me off this. Uh, <laughs> side of this hill. Somebody tried to drown me in the Grand River. They held my head under the water and, you know, as a kid I was flailing around and trying to to, to get loose and then finally I, th- I said to myself, just pretend you're dead. Just go limp. And when I did that, the bully uh, thought that they had drowned me and they, they let me go and I swam away like Aquaman. But yeah, so humor, uh, you know, somehow I find humor in all this and uh, and bring those kind of stories and truths to my uh, to my stage experience, stage show and uh, share my experience. Thank you for sharing that. That's difficult to share. So I really well, do appreciate that. Honestly, I got used to it, used to it. And no, no person should get used to it. And it continued through college and uh, even out into the workplace. And, and I went into the uh, world of corporate broadcasting. I worked for some of the biggest broadcasting companies in Canada. And sure enough, uh, you know, down the hall, ways you'd hear somebody say something or management would say something and but because I was used to it I just let it roll off my back and and uh, go go on with my own radio show or whatever it is they had me do so if you had to give advice to somebody who was in similar shoes where they're being you know racially discriminated against and they had to find their own kind of ways to cope with it not everybody's a comedian not everybody can you know laugh those things off what kind of advice would you give that person but when it comes to to um, talking to the youth I tell them to uh, don't keep it in Inside, if you're frustrated, if you're being bullied, tell somebody, of course, an elder or your your, your teacher, the principal, your mom, your, your kookum, somebody, you know, don't just put up with it like I did. I, in fact, I did tell my mother and she said, you know what, you're a very special boy. Don't let it worry. The other children are just jealous of you because you're brown and they're not. Which didn't really help me out in the parking lot after school. I still got beat up. But I tell the youth to express yourself. Now, it could be through music, write a song, uh, could be through poetry, uh, could be through um, artwork, do something something to uh, let that the negative thoughts out of your mind and uh, and get it out there and then you don't have to share it with other people you can just read it and and uh, keep your you know your, your thoughts to yourself don't become a ticking yeah. time bomb <laughs> don't <laughs> wise words you know in this whole process of you know being very vocal about your own experiences and things like that um, have you had anybody ever like come up to you and share their <laughs> experience and like what is that like Sharing my story in First Nation communities is uh, is uh, 
I think, a positive thing for the youth because I always tell them if I, if I made it, education is very important, and I, I stress that in my show. And uh, you know what? Don't put pressure on yourself. Education is supposed to be fun. And the fact that they see an Anishinaabe man on stage having fun, and I'm very animated with my with my uh, with my stand-up comedy show. My arms are flailing, and I'm um, storming across the stage. And if they're laughing and really into it, and I, there's funny character voices, and I you know I sing funny songs. They're seeing me express myself, and I'm not you know I'm certainly not ashamed to put it all out there on the stage. And then just when they think that they've seen enough, they've seen everything that I could possibly do, then I make it the transformation into Ojibwe Elvis <laughs> and I put on a gold lame jacket and slick back my hair and put on my sideburns and then suddenly there I am singing, you know, the music of Elvis Presley. And now they're saying, "Wow, where is this coming from?" You know? And I'm like, you know, don't stop expressing yourself. If you like to do something, do it. If it brings joy to your heart, if you have a passion for it, do it. And so I like to leave them looking at it going, you know, that was really entertaining. That was really fun. He's having fun. And life can be fun and it should be fun, especially for the youth. That's awesome. That's So wait, how did Ojibwe Elvis come together? Like that is a different <laughs> kind of mix. How did that come together for you? Oh, well, thank you. The um, Ojibwe Elvis uh, was a part of my comedy act. I was doing stand-up comedy, and uh, just out of uh, one night I asked, do we have any Elvis fans? And the whole place went nuts. And I thought, oh, gosh, that would know, be nice if I had some Elvis jokes or if I, had, if I knew an Elvis song. I didn't. But uh, the reaction that that got that night, I thought, gosh, you know, I should really try to learn an Elvis song and, and maybe tag it at the end of my show. And I did that, and it went over really, really well. First the first time I did it, and I didn't even sing an Elvis song, I just had on, a, uh, uh, I think, a scarf and a flipped up my, my collar. I got a standing ovation. And Elijah Harper, God rest his soul, was in the audience that night. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, and the whole place stood up and uh, gave me this uh, big ovation. I thought, okay, I'm on to something here, you know. And so from that, put together an Elvis show. It varies in length. It could be, you know, it's built for corporate, for the corporate world, but it can be 45 minutes, it could be an hour, it could be. We just did a 90-minute show with, uh, with a band. I mean, it's, it's taken off so much that I, I form my own band now. And we go out and do uh, casino shows or festivals. And, and it's, it's almost as popular as the comedy you know, but the the thing is, is that I had to uh, expand my act, and so if they want stand up comedy, they still get a little bit of Elvis, or people can hire the Ojibwe Elvis show. Well, if you ever need a Cree Justin Bieber, let me know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll grow the hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Ojibwe Elvis, and if you're going to be a tribute artist, you could be Justin Beaver. Oh you yes, see where that goes. <laughs> yeah. what I'm trying to do there. Yeah, you know. You wanna, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast, on the basis of it, is reconciliation and the discussion of reconciliation. What is your own kind of perception and definition of reconciliation? <laughs> well, there's, the, of course, there's the serious uh, definition, and that is uh, it's a, um, a coming together of our Indigenous uh, people and the Canadian government and Canadians in general, and to discuss uh, with, a, with a respectful dialogue uh, our two cultures and bringing them together and uh, and and living living in harmony. But you know, then there's I thought of it last night when you when you mentioned what the topic was going to be. I thought reconciliation is like a unicorn. Everybody you know wants one because they're magical and they're fun to to be around and it brings joys to people heart to people's heart. But reconciliation is not a unicorn because <laughs> they don't exist. You know, uh, it's a myth. And uh, hopefully, you know, a hundred years from now. Uh, we won't be having this discussion mm -hmm. about what is reconciliation. Uh, we'll definitely know by that time, and uh, and people will be, uh, it, there will be that working respectful dialogue. So I guess moving forward, how do you think the Indigenous community can move forward in terms of reconciliation, or not even just them, but, um, you know, other communities as well? Well, I think right now some uh, Indigenous communities in Canada still have a lot of issues with the government, i.e. the pipeline going through British Columbia and, uh, you know, communities really uh, need to come to terms with that. The government needs to come to terms with it. You know, do rail lines need to run right past or through First Nation communities? And uh, so there's still a lot of, I don't want to say anger, but there's but there's but there are certain things that need to be figured out. And so you've got that going on. And then uh, also the reconciliation of uh, culture, our culture. I think Aboriginal people have been reconciling for years and uh and trying to come to terms with what's happened to our people over the you know the course of the last 150 years and where it's going. 
And just recently, the Canada itself is starting to, you know, oh, we should reconcile. We should have reconciliation. And they're just coming along with it now. But we've had to come to terms with the treaty rights and the, and the treaty violations and, the, you know, the cultural genocide and, and all that right from day one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've been reconciling for a long time. And now the rest of the country seems to be, to be coming along and, and uh, getting on the bandwagon. Why do you think now it's happening more often that you see it more prevalent? As sad as it sounds, I don't think most Canadians who live in high, highly densely, densely populated cities could give a rat's ass about the indigenous people living uh, in the far north. Uh, they have no clue about the, uh, the, the cost of, of food. The, the you know the lack of vegetables and fruits for for the youth, uh, the lack of clean water, running water, you know the uh, the toxic uh, environments that we live in, thanks to uh, you know the the, uh, the uh, you know emissions from oil refineries, and and so there's a lot going on that most Canadians don't know about. You know, if they went to a First Nation community and had to live there for a week or two, that would be an eye-opening experience for them. But like I say, they're busy with their lives living in Mississauga, you know, trying to get the go train to get into Toronto to, to make a buck. And so they, they're living in their reality. And what our people are living with uh, in the remote communities is a completely different planet altogether. And that's very sad. Well, what I find, too, is that a lot of people say, you know, why don't, uh, why don't the Indigenous people get off the reservation and come to, the, you know, get a job and make your life better for yourself? Well... I think a, a lot of Indigenous people did come to the city, and it didn't work out. And that's why we have high rates of homelessness and despair, and that's too bad. Some people tried to make a go of it, and they fell through the cracks. I was lucky enough because I had a good support system, right? But I still had those dark moments where, you know, I wondered, why are people angry at me because my skin is brown? You know, I, I like people, I, but when they start calling me every racist name in the book and, and uh, you know, make me feel uncomfortable and really bad about myself— you know, I had to come to terms with that, and that t- that you know took time. And I still you look at <laughs> you look at uh, you know some of the comments on Facebook, or and it, it just uh, it's still uncomfortable to to uh, live with brown skin. And I hope that someday that ends, and and people recognize you know that we that we're all the same inside. Mm-hmm. We all have uh, a heart and soul and families and you know loves, and we want to uh, we want to live peacefully. We don't want to have to look over our Shoulder, you know, when we're walking down Main Street thinking, are we going to get, you know, a racist going to attack me (laughs) or whatever. And Donald Trump's not helping either with his rhetoric about, you know, about people that he doesn't see uh, living in his world. Uh, Whatever world that (laughs) is. (laughs) You said everyone has a heart and soul, but Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Um, But speaking of the president of the United States, didn't you perform at 2013's uh, Barack Obama's inaugural ball? Yes, I was invited to uh, to perform in Washington uh, in 2013 at an official black tie event for Barack Obama when he was uh, reelected. And there are five official balls for the uh, president when they're uh, reelected or elected. And so he can't make every every uh, gala. So ours was a sold out event. It was a thousand dollars a ticket to get into the event. I couldn't even afford a ticket to go to see my own show. Um, I had to pawn my tuxedo <laughs> to, to get home. Yeah. It was very sad, but it happened, and uh, it was uh, a very uh, you know a highlight of my career, obviously. But there were a lot of other Indigenous people there. Uh, Murray Porter, uh, a great uh, blues player from Vancouver, Six Nations, I believe, Mohawk, and uh, Martha Redbone was there, and uh, another comedy improv troupe, 1491, I think is their their name. But it was at the event was held at the uh, Native American uh, Museum, which is right across from the uh, Capitol Building in Washington. You open mm-hmm. up. I went out for a, a breath of fresh air after my show. Opened up the door, and there is the Capitol Building bathed in uh, in the moonlight. It was a really really awesome uh, uh, event. How was meeting Obama? Well, I, did, I saw him go by in his limousine, and I waved at him. <laughs> so whether or not he saw us, you know, there was another 25,000 people standing beside me. But I did meet his cardboard cutout of, uh, <laughs> in the lobby of the show. Uh, security was really tight. 
So how'd that, yeah, and how'd uh, that make you feel? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, I was surrounded by a lot of other uh, Nietzsche people, so I, I was right at home there. But what happened was, um, I did my stand-up comedy set uh, during the cocktail portion of the uh, black tie event, and then some other entertainers came on, and then I came back as Ojibwe Elvis. Well, of course, Elvis always came on stage to a huge fanfare that the uh, the big song of the 2001 theme, you know. And so that's how they started my Ojibwe Elvis show with that 2001 rumbling and the big horns and the, the drums. And everybody in tuxedos and, and their uh, gowns came and looked down on the stage because it's a three-tiered uh, building. It's a huge building. And they all looked down because they thought Barack Obama was actually coming into the room. And this was the fanfare for him. It was just me <laughs> coming out as Ojibwe Elvis. But... Uh, just like any other show, they wanted their selfies with with me, and it was very difficult to perform because I couldn't move because all these the wives of all these millionaires were uh, crowding the stage and uh, and taking selfies <laughs> while, I'm, while I'm trying to sing. You ain't nothing but a res dog. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> so, as an indigenous man, how did you end up falling into comedy? Like, how did that happen for you? Uh, how I got into comedy was uh, happened here in Winnipeg. Actually, uh, I came out here to be a broadcaster at a radio station. And in order to do my show prep every day, I would look at the, the local or the, the local daily newspapers, and one of them was the Winnipeg Sun. And every day, it seemed, there was a negative story on the front page about Indigenous people. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? Why aren't there positive stories? Because I looked at my own life, and I thought, well, I'm a positive story. Here's an Indigenous person on one of the most popular radio stations in Winnipeg. Where's that story? You know? And... So finally, I thought, well, I'm going to have a positive story to tell. So there was an open mic at a comedy club that's uh, no longer with us, and it's probably my fault. But anyway, <laughs> I, I went on open mic, and I started doing uh, my uh, open mic, and I started to build up an act. And uh, then that club closed down, and, I, and then I applied at Rumors Comedy Club. They said, you know, it's, it's good that you called us because we'd never call you. What have you got? Come down tomorrow night and, and show us your stuff. And I did that. It went over really well, and I was hired as, a, as an MC. Uh, you know, uh, a world class and, and uh, probably one of the best comedy clubs in Canada. And then I built my, my Indigenous act here in Winnipeg in front of uh, a Rumors Comedy Club crowd over, you know, course of years. So now now you're on stages, you're on television. I'm also a screenwriter and I've got uh, some, some scripts that are completed and uh, it's, uh, some Hollywood producers have shown uh, uh, some great interest in, in two of my projects. Nice. One's a, a biopic about me and the other is uh believe it or not a um a christmas story oh nice <laughs> and i also have a horror movie about windigo that i've uh that i've written that i'm really excited about so how do you kill something that's already dead <laughs> windigo california i heard it's summer all the time there yeah, and very that sounds smoky. awful and it's on, you know? and it's on fire <laughs> right now <laughs> so i guess moving forward what do you want to see the outcome of all of your you know performing arts work well uh like I say, I wouldn't mind a, 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 a movie, an autobiographical uh, uh, movie done about my journey. Um, and I'm also working on my memoirs, which will probably just turn into a biography. Um, I don't know how that story's going to end yet. <laughs> it could end after this podcast. You yeah. stepped out in front of a Winnipeg bus and that was it. <laughs> the end. Um, so, yeah, so I want to write, uh, write my biography and uh, perhaps a movie about my adventures. And then uh, ultimately have one of my uh, screenplays produced by a Hollywood producer. Thank you so much for being on the Minigon Diagon uh, podcast, Jerry. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Minogandagan, the Good Boys podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with actor and comedian Jerry Barrett. Be sure to check out more of his work at corporatecomedians.ca. Finally, today we are joined by our third guest, Don Kelly, a stand-up comedian and host and writer of the Gemini-nominated television series Fish Out of Water, now entering its fourth season on APTN. Fish Out of Water explores Don's adventures as an urban Indian trying to learn the traditional skills and wisdom of Aboriginal peoples across Turtle Island, often with hilarious results. Don has starred in his own television specials on CBC's Comics and CTV's Comedy Now, and has made appearances on The Debaters, the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, and other programs and festivals. Don continues to perform stand-up comedy across North America. I'm sitting here with Don Kelly. Bonjour. Thanks for having me here, Alyssa. 
Thanks for coming. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where are your people at? Where are you from? That is that not the classic Indigenous question? Whenever know, two right? Indigenous people meet, yes. that's right. I think that's what got Joseph Boyd in a lot of trouble eventually. <laughs> so, uh, my my reserve is uh, uh, the Ojibwe's of Onegaming. I'm an urban Indian. I'm, a, I'm yeah. a con- I was called a concrete Indian by an elder once, and I thought that meant, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm solid, I'm strong, good foundation. <laughs> he said, no, no, I can tell your feet have never touched anything but concrete. So, oh <laughs> so I grew, grew up in the city, and I now live in Ottawa. So that brings us right to where we are today. You grew up in Winnipeg, and uh, you're living in Ottawa now. Uh, what what happened? What, <laughs> that's, that's what, what always, happened to you, Don? That, that's what people always say when you tell them you live in Ottawa. Oh, yeah. what happened? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's so severe. <laughs> well, oh, well, I mean, geez, it's, uh, yeah, I guess the... The, the micro history would be, you know, I, uh, I started when I graduated. I was, like, looking to possibly teach. There were no jobs in the city. I could have gone to my res. But then I started writing. I've always loved writing. You know, it was interesting. My, my father came out of the residential schools. You know, he was taken when he was four. Yeah. And in the cold calculus of the time, it's because they were taking all the rest of his brothers. So why right. not take the four-year? He's yeah. not even going, going to be in school, not even older. But you know what? We're taking them all. Let's take them all anyways. And he had, if you read the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, uh, you know, this was prior to the TRC, yeah. the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. His is the first chapter in their first publication where he talks about his story. And it's pretty powerful. There's a lot of powerful stories, of course. His is one of them. So when he came out, it was interesting. I talked about my language there. It was interesting. He came out not ashamed of his language. Mm -hmm. He actually came out probably more angry and thought, you know what? That language is a weapon they're using against us. You you, you kids, I've I've got a brother, you know, you kids learn that because they're Mm going to use that again. You learn it better than them if you can because that's going to be... Uh, you know, one of the weapons they use. And that's why we, I think in, in my generation, we had so many people going into law school because they knew, you know what, this is something they're using against yeah. us like a blunt, well, or maybe a sharp instrument. So yeah. let's learn it and get better at it than them. So there was a bit of that. So the, the downside is I don't know my language that well. And I think that is really key to understanding who we are. But yeah, so I started, I was always interested in writing. I did a lot of freelance writing. I started working with CBC. I was a writer broadcaster here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. When I went over the wall, and this is what took me to Ottawa, was when the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People started. And I was looking for a change at the time. I was really thinking more maybe another location, like another CBC location, but I just threw my name in, and I basically, the cover letter was like, hey, if I fit anywhere, let me know. I'm interested. (laughs) (laughs) That was basically it. And I got a communications job since then. I've been with, uh, done groups, the Assembly of First Nations, uh, done a lot of freelancing and contracting, but then... This is, you know, uh, where I, I look to you and admire you as well. We've also got a little performing background in yeah. there as well. Yeah. So how did you start your journey in comedy? Well, yeah, you're right. When I started, you know, there weren't a lot of uh, First Nations people doing comedy. There was, like I say, Jerry I knew about. Um, there was another yeah. guy, Howie Miller out west. He was yeah. just getting going. Uh, but it was to the point, yeah, it was like that. It was kind of like... <clears throat> Uh, kind of like what we as Indigenous people in general experience. Oh, you're you're indig- Indigenous. Do you know Jerry from you know Alberta? You know, <laughs> you, he, he, I, he, I think you might. Anyway, same thing when you're Indigenous comic. People always say, "Do you know Howie?" Because there yes. were so few. Of us yeah. doing, you know? I started. I went out. So I went out to Ottawa, and I always say, you know, I've been doing that kind of work longer than the comedy. But I'd always wanted to try stand-up comedy. So, anyways, I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm in a town where I don't know anybody, right? Because I know the two approaches are our first time you do it. You either pack the room with all your friends, so hopefully mm-hmm. you get that moral support, and they'll they'll help you with the encouragement. I was other way. I was like, you know what? I don't want anyone yeah. to see this my first time because if it goes well, then it means hey, I did it on my own, not because I packed the room. And if it doesn't go well, I don't want to see any of these people ever again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was the latter. It was the yeah. second thing that happened. Oh. I had no performing background. That was part of the thing. Yeah, I'd done CBC. But in terms of um, character or what even my voice was, you yeah. know, that it was all uh, a work in progress. Do you see reconciliation happening and do you think it needs to happen more? Absolutely has to happen more. We've got a long way to go. And I know you and I have talked about this. It's, it's work. Yeah. Um, I think we talked about it. Yes. Never said it's going to be easy <laughs> yeah. uh, and nor should it be. And uh, but it absolutely has to have it's long overdue i don't need to tell you or uh, any of our our indigenous friends that this is long overdue where i think education in classrooms is a big part of the answer 
because you don't learn that so you don't understand how we got to the situation that that we're in now yeah and I think and you know when you talk I've, I've gone out and talked to classes of kids and like a little light goes on because you know they really you know most people are generally somewhat fair and they believe in justice and treating people respectfully and with dignity I like to think anyways uh, but they just don't know. Like, I, there absolutely is racism in Canada, but there's also a lot of ignorance. And I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. I mean, they just don't know because yeah. they, they weren't taught it. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's a big part. The issue for me is, as a country, uh, the non-Indigenous population is getting older and you tend to get a little more conservative. And they yeah. didn't learn this. And I think because they were taught that Canada's a beacon of human rights and right. Canada's a fair, just country, we're one of the best countries to live in. So when they hear these things about, yeah, well, you know, your first prime minister forcibly starved the entire Plains Indian yeah. population, set up the system that ripped kids away from their families. And uh, even if even if they weren't abused, even if you took that out of the equation, just the whole trampling and, and, and attempt to wipe out the languages and the cultures, add the abuse on top of that, that's the system he set up. People get really offended. And so you get this colonial tantrum of, yeah. oh, you're trying to change history. I think that's the difficulty, right, is, is, yes. is we need to, uh, people need to start accepting this and engaging and dialoguing around it and being willing to, to hear that. Mm -hmm. A lot of your comedy does still deal with your experiences as an Indigenous man. What kind of responses do you get to your take on things. When I started, I thought, I want to talk about being First Nations because I'm not hearing anyone talk about it. But I found whenever I would even just raise, so I'm, you know, I'm Native Canadian or I'm Ojibwe Indian, almost like people like get a little stiff, like, ooh, yes. okay, what's coming here? Yes. And and they're thinking the worst in either way. They're thinking either, is he going to make fun of every stereotype? And if we laugh, does that make us racist? Is yeah. he, he going to like, you know, you know, denigrate his own culture? Or they think, is this going to be the huge guilt trip now? Yes. Like, are they, is he going to lay all this stuff on us? I just came here to laugh, you know, yeah. kind of thing. So, yeah. so I had to find ways. And so I, I actually, a lot of my, early jokes uh, were just kind of more silly. They weren't really issue driven, but I, the first couple jokes I would do about it were usually just sort of silly stuff. You know, even like my, I'm urban Indian, my spirit animal's giant tiger. Yeah. <laughs> That's a more recent joke, but I mean, it was, it was that kind of thing without trying to, but I did, I also knew I didn't want to go the, I'm going to play up all the stereotypes now. Right. I just think that gives people in the audience who actually believe those to to say it, it reinforce, and then they go yeah. tell their friends, and if someone calls them on, they go, "Oh, well, the native Canadian the other night said it, so yeah. hey, why can't I?" So I tried to find the way. I basically so try to ease them into it. Then things can get a little heavier. Yeah. Now that I'm uh, uh, kind of have a better handle on what I'm doing, I'll go a little heavier off the start sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I don't know. I hope this. <laughs> like one thing I'll often say is in a crowd is. Uh, I'll say so. Any, I'm First Nations. I'm Ojibwe mm -hmm. Indian. Any, you know, any of my, uh, my, my, you know, homies in the crowd yeah. or whatever. And I love it when there's no response. Yes. And I always say, "Wow, when white people wipe out a race, they're thorough, huh?" <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and it gets. <laughs> That's and then so I'll good. go, I'll go too soon. Okay, sorry, yeah, too soon. <laughs> so I know. What's great is you get that very Canadian mix of kind of what you just did of. Oh, geez, you know, <laughs> I just can't. Like, they're applauding us as yeah. they're ooing or whatever, yeah. and I love that reaction. Um, so I'll go a little harder sometimes, yeah. but but I, I like to think it's also kind of funny enough that they'll give me that yeah. sort of, wow, he's like, he's pushing it, right? Yes. For me, uh, I want to approach it with some kind of responsibility. You're not, you're not going to come to my show and leave being able to pass a test on Indigenous issues. There's a lot of silly stuff in there. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to be a little more right. I want to be woke, woke like you. Alyssa. Oh, you're woke. woke. We're so woke. <laughs> woke AF. Um. <laughs> How do you see reconciliation moving forward and, you know, becoming a meaningful part of Canadian society and life? Well, it's it's a big question. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people who have different answers to yeah. it. I do, like, for example... Let's start small. I see nothing wrong with uh, taking down a statue or mm -hmm. changing the name of uh, Langevin Block to whatever it's called, the Prime Minister's Office, Office of the Prime Minister. So anyways, but the discussion, I bet more people are learning more about John A. and Canadian history than they ever did yes. who walked by the statue a thousand times. Exactly. Even though it's people are like reacting negatively, I think the discussion is actually helpful around those things. But 
So that's part of education, which I think helps, but I think we need to really, uh, you know, do more. And right. reconciling is about more than just clean drinking water, although that's part of it. It is about uh, getting a better quality of your life uh, so our children have hope, they have opportunity. But it's really, I think it needs national moves, local moves on a number of levels. And I really think it's things like, for example, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, now the NDP uh, MP, Romeo Saganash, has a bill to make that, basically entrench it in Canadian law. So if you put the UN Declaration in Canadian law, things like free, prior, and informed consent over our lands, uh, respecting our rights, respecting our languages, I think that really gives a good foundation. Now, it doesn't mean things change tomorrow once that happens, but it really puts government more on the hook to respect our rights. And yeah. I think that, that that's pretty key because there's a few things like land as well is absolutely fundamental to this whole discussion. Like uh, really restoring the land base, restoring our rights, and not just our rights, but our responsibilities to the land as well. Like we don't just see it's like, yeah, it's all right now, we can do what we want. We yeah. are, you know, our people, our elders, our young people are learning more about, about who they are and, and the traditional teachings. It's the responsibilities as well to the land that, that we want to have. Uh, the ability for the community to set its own direction, I think, is, is important. And that re- requires restoring the land base and as well the rights and responsibilities to the land. I think. Uh, language, support for languages is important. There's the Indigenous Languages Act being developed, which will compel the government not to tell us how to restore our languages. It compels them to support our approaches to restore our languages. Because if our people are going to survive into the next century, then the languages have to be spoken. Like I say, I wish I, I'm a write-off at this point. You know, I wish I, I, I'm trying to learn what I can, but I can't. But, but that's, that's really core to identity. So I think that kind of work is important as well. We never agreed to give up our ability to have a say in the decisions that affect our lives. In fact, that's what the treaty says. We keep that right. We'll make yeah. the decisions that affect our lives and our nations and our children. That's what we're asking for. So I think getting back to that original, and you know, we can work in partnership where we want to work in partnership. Yeah. Uh, we'll respect each other's uh, you know, laws, but hey, we still have the right to make those laws and make those decisions. We do need to learn more about our shared history. Anyone, though, who sort of is willing to go to a lecture or go to a documentary or some film is probably leaning towards being with us. I think where entertainment comes in handy is someone who comes into a comedy club mm-hmm. or they might go to a, see a theater, you know, yeah. a, a, a play here at a theater in Winnipeg or Ottawa or whatever. That's why I'm so glad to see so many of our people like yes. in those creative fields, yes. singers, you name it. Because again, they're going to reach an audience that doesn't want to go to a lecture or, or, yeah. or read, you know, the, the latest history of uh, Indigenous peoples in Canada. So I think we can, uh, yeah, again, I don't want to put too much responsibility on us, but I mean, I think that really helps we have more people doing that kind yes. of thing. Yeah, we're reaching people that that you know wouldn't be reached otherwise so i think that uh, that helps with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> yes. well don miigwitch for being here oh yeah, this this what we're doing right what you're doing with this project this this is part of reconciliation so miigwitch to you Ooh, that's going to be a tagline <laughs> welcome back to minnow gundagan the good voice podcast the show exploring reconciliation from an indigenous perspective we just spoke with don kelly Be sure to check out his latest show, Fish Out of Water, at foow.ca. Miigwech to all of our guests on this episode, the fourth in our series. Thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts on a subject that should be on every Canadian voice, reconciliation. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversations today and will tune into future episodes as we engage in more thought-provoking conversations about reconciliation. We'll close off our episode with a track from Snotty Nose Res Kids, This is The Warriors. Check out more of their music at snottynoseresskids.bandcamp.com. Hell nah, we won't go, boy. Welcome here to my side. I'm from the people of the snow, boy. That mean I thrive in the wintertime. Yeah, I'm what they call a savage kid. My family tree is bigger than the old and new testament. I put a fist up. That's where they call Kaepernick. Somebody gotta stand for it. Tell them who you so beware, we black snake killers Blackfish have been a killer We're the ones you can't get rid of, sound familiar? Yeah, long hair, that Ric Flair Nature boy from the village E for really, really, you see How I'm rock and roll, rock and roll. Nah, I'm standing right standing right. Yeah. I think there's something in the water Here's some food for thought Is it really a felony for wanting my water clean? Expect us not to rage against the machine Ain't moving like Rosa P, nope 
Cause this dream catcher and catching your pipe dream word. Look what happened in Flynn, no disrespect But the same thing happens to village kids That see water from the tap And a dying to live from the cancer it gives Where's the state of emergency for them? I don't know like you know the story Broken treaties, unholy matrimony One nation, under the creator, homie All my relations, many with Choni Warriors, come out and play Officers, we're here to stay Put a fist to the sky If you ride with me As long as I'm alive I'll stand for this. Uh, they be greasing their hands. Shitting on the people while they're stacking their bands. While they say we all legal, they don't look at us as people. All they see is our land. Believe in the cedar, we can leave it to beaver. True, don't motherfucker, man, we need a real leader. Middle fingers to the colorblind. No disrespect, but if you don't see color, you don't see me neither. Step in line, man. We'll be fine, fam. Yeah, we ready for war. Don't cross the line in the sand. You'll be lying in the sand. Boy, I die for my land. Real talk. Look, I stand with the warriors. This land is who we are. We can let you destroy us. Until the people said, yo, bro, they can employ us. Look, man, it's not like I haven't noticed. Hey, Quentin, I work for uh, Tender Morgan, your apprenticeship of uh, heavy duty mechanic. We are looking. If you're interested, give me a call back as soon as possible. Thank you, bye. To replay this message, press 1 to go to the pre-message deleted. You have no more messages. Tiny house, what up? Water is life, please fill me a cup So I can spill it on your face and wake your dumb ass up Enough is enough, numb nuts, wake up Yo, fuck Kinder Morgan, here's a Kinder surprise Indigenous resistance, man, we got nine lives We put a life on the line, not a lifeline I'll be damned if I see another broken pipe line Officers, we're here to stay. Put a fist to the sky if you ride with me. As long as I'm alive, I'll stand for thee. If the unceded land is your home, put your fist up, cousin, put your fist up. If you like your water clean yet alone, put your fist up, cousin, put your fist up. You know we're ready for war, we in a zone. Put your fist up, cousin, put your fist up. Mino Gundagan was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabek, Nahewak, Ojikri, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Our executive producer is Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon, our associate producer is Sasha Mark, and I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of Boogie the Beat. Check out more of his brilliant work at soundcloud.com forward slash Boogie the Beat. The interstitial music is courtesy of Bloom. You can hear more of their songs at bloom14.bandcamp.com. We would like to thank the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the University of Manitoba's Office of Indigenous Achievement, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, the University of Manitoba Students' Union, and UMFM 101.5 for their support in the production of this series.